Well, I heard a story recently about a father whose five-year-old son was having major surgery. And the story was told from the perspective of the father, and he was sharing about how tough that day was and about how emotionally draining and difficult it was to witness his son go through that. And those of y'all parents who have been through that, y'all can relate, right? And he said the most difficult part of the day was being in the room with his son just before they had to take him back for surgery. And the father said he did not want them to just whisk his son away all of a sudden without his son knowing that he, the father, was not going to be able to be in the room with him during the procedure. So a short time before they came to uh, get his son, the father told him that he had to leave him for a little while. And upon hearing that news, the boy began to cry. And he said, please, Dad, don't leave me. Please stay here with me. Why are you leaving me? And the father began to cry and he said, Son, I have to go, but I want you to know that it's good for me to go. It's a good thing for me to leave you because if I don't, then the doctors cannot come to you and take you and make you well. He said, if I stay... If I refuse to leave you, the work that needs to be done for you will not be done. And you'll remain sick. But of course, the son didn't understand all that. It made no sense to him how his dad leaving him in his greatest time of need was a good thing. And the dad who was grieved in his spirit for his son did the only thing he knew he could do for him. He continued to tell him over and over again the same thing, that him going away was a good thing so that the doctors could come and make him well. I love that story because it really helps illustrate what we've been talking about in here over the past few weeks. It really captures what the mood must have been like between Jesus and his disciples in the upper room and on the way back to the Garden of Gethsemane just hours before Jesus' arrest and a day before his crucifixion. And that's where we find ourselves again this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 16. John 16. We're continuing our sermon series through the Gospel of John today entitled Knowing Jesus from John. And we're coming to the end of this lengthy section within the book of John known as the Upper Room Discourse, which takes place from chapter 13 through chapter 17. And like we've said several times in the past several weeks, within these chapters and within this section, John is giving us a detailed account of what took place just hours before Jesus' arrest and a day before his crucifixion. He spends one-fourth of this book, 20%, 25% of this book covering these events right here shows that they're very important, right? And during this section, Jesus is with his disciples 
and he's preparing them and equipping them for what is to come. He's getting ready to leave them. He knows it's coming. So he spends this last evening with them, teaching them and preparing them for his departure. And one point that Jesus makes to them time and time again is that him leaving them is good. It's a good thing. Though it seemed like the worst thing in the world, it was truly the best thing. He tells him that throughout this section. And in this chapter we're going to look at this morning, chapter 16, Jesus continues with this message by giving his disciples a great word of comfort here. And his main message in this chapter is this. He basically says this. He says, though I'm leaving you and times are going to be tough for you because of me, I am sending you my Holy Spirit. Believers, I believe that this right here is the greatest word of comfort that Jesus gives his disciples in this entire section. Let me explain why. The first reason why I believe the promise of the Holy Spirit is the greatest source of comfort for Jesus' disciples is because when the Holy Spirit comes, he's coming to fight for them. And that's point number one. The Holy Spirit comes to fight for his own. And boy, did they need someone fighting for them. Let me explain why. Look at verse 1. Jesus says this. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Let's stop there for a minute. First, let's, let's talk about what Jesus is referring to when he says all these things. What things is Jesus talking about here? Well, he's talking about all the things he said in the previous chapters to them. Specifically, verses 18 through 25 of chapter 15. Flip back there and look at that. Chapter 15, verses 18 through 25. In this passage, you can just read through it. I'm not going to read it for you. But in this passage, Jesus tells his disciples that the world is going to hate them because the world hated him. So he, he, he reminds them here in the first part of chapter 16, in verse 1, that though there are going to be a lot of benefits to him going away, he lets him know that, won't, that doesn't mean that they won't have their challenges. They clearly will. Now, why does Jesus bring this up here? I mean, they're already overwhelmed enough, right? By him leaving them, they're, they're deeply troubled. And Jesus says, oh, and on top of all that, to top all that off, in addition to me leaving you, the world's going to hate you because of me. Wow. Why does he add this here? I mean, couldn't, they have, couldn't he have just done without this at this time? Well, he tells them why he says this in verse 1. Look, look at it. He says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Now, what does he mean here by falling away? Well, a little is lost in, in translation on this word. And at times that happens when translating from the Hebrew to the English or the Greek to the English. But, but what that word literally means is translated in my Bible as falling away. It literally means to be caught off guard. 
to be trapped. What Jesus is literally saying here is this. He's saying, man, I'm telling you these things. I'm telling you that things are going to be difficult for you. I'm telling you about how men are going to hate you so that you will not be naive and get blindsided when men turn against you. He said, I'm telling you this so that you will not be disillusioned and turn away from me when opposition comes. You see, in the previous chapters, Jesus has given his disciples some great words of comfort, hasn't he? He's told them that he's leaving them, but though he's leaving them, he's going to prepare a place for them. He's going to accomplish salvation for them. He's going to redeem them. But Jesus knows to to uh, properly prepare them, he has to tell them everything. He can't just tell them the good news. He has to tell them the bad news as well, right? Because when the tough times inevitably come, if he doesn't prepare them, they're going to be caught off guard. So he gives them the bad with the good to properly prepare them for the tough times ahead. And though in the previous chapter he was a bit vague when he talked about the world hating them he gets much more specific here in chapter 16 look at the first part of verse 2 he says they will put you out of the synagogues now many of you hear that and say oh what's the big deal about that so they can't go in the synagogues they got jesus they don't need to go in there anyways right so what well let me tell you there's a lot more to it than just that in the first century If one was put out of the synagogue, it essentially meant that they were put outside the Jewish community. They were treated as outcasts. It was the equivalent of being exiled. In fact, in Jewish law, said that if one was put out of the synagogue, they were considered to be worse than a pagan Gentile. Those who had been put out of the synagogue were thought by by many in the Jewish community as being the scum of the earth. Oftentimes it separated individuals from their family and friends, from most everybody, so people tried to avoid this at all costs. Jesus tells his disciples here, he says, you guys better get ready. He says, when you stand for me, when you follow me, they're going to put you out of the synagogues. Men are going to cut you out of their lives. Your families may disown you. Your friends may turn against you. And your nation will turn its back on you if you follow me. Now that's heavy, isn't it? Can you feel the weight of that? It's heavy. And again, Jesus is telling them these things. So they won't get blindsided and fall away. Jesus says, I don't want you to think that the Christian walk is a bed of roses and turn away at the first sign of trouble. That's why he's telling them this. He says, by following me, you're going to be cut off from your people. You're going to be rejected and despised by friends and family. And believers, at times, to a certain extent, though not to this degree... We might experience a little bit of this, right? When I gave my life to Christ in college, there were certain certain people that uh, cut ties with me. And I also know of people who have been rejected by their family, those who have been ridiculed, 
by the public for following Christ. This, this happens, and that's what Jesus is preparing his disciples for, for here. But not only that, look at the latter half of verse 2. Jesus says, The hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. So not only are they going to be despised and rejected by their own people, but they're going to be put to death for following Jesus. So on top of him telling them, you're going to be cut off from your friends and your family and cut off from all you've known, Jesus says, many of you are going to be put to death for following me. He says, the hour is coming when your own countrymen are going to kill you and they're going to do it, notice the end of verse 2, thinking they're offering service to God. Wow. He says, they're going to kill you believing you are the godless ones. They're going to go on a religious crusade and put you to death because they believe they're fulfilling the will of God. What a colossal mistake, right? I mean, think about this. The Jewish religious leaders of the day actually believed that they were doing God's will by killing his son and putting his people to death. That is a massive mess up, isn't it? What's their problem? How could they miss the mark by this much? Well, Jesus tells us at the end of verse 3, look at it. He says, they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. He says, the reason these guys are so off track, the reason they're going to crucify me and turn against you is because they don't know God. The Jewish religious leaders of the day do not know God. Though they claim to be followers of him, they have no clue as to who he is. He says they don't know him and they don't know me, and as a result, they're not going to be able to see you as being godly either. So they're going to kill you. Wow, that's some tough news, isn't it? Jesus is letting them know that there is a war that is gearing up, and he tells them many of you are going to be casualties in that war. Now think about what had to be going through their minds upon hearing this. I mean, put yourself in their shoes for a moment. Let's say you're with Jesus, and he tells you, because you're following me, the world is going to hate you, You'll be rejected by your own family and friends and even your own country, and you'll ultimately be put to death. My guess is you'd be pretty troubled as well. Am I right? Yeah. And they clearly were. Look at verses 4 through 6. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So Jesus says here, though I knew this day was coming, and though I knew what your fate was going to be, I have waited to tell you these things. Why? Why did he wait? Because it would have been too much for them from the beginning, don't you think? They knew from the beginning that they were going to be despised and rejected and eventually killed by their own people for following Jesus, they might not be able to think about anything else, right? During Christ's earthly ministry. And that's clearly what's happening here. 
Notice Jesus says, though I'm leaving, none of you are now concerned with where I'm going. You were earlier. Remember, Thomas asked the question, Lord, where are you going? Now they're not even worried about that. He says, now you're so troubled about thinking about what lies ahead for you that you're not thinking about what lies ahead for me. He says in verse 6, Sorrow has so filled your heart that your concern is turned away from me and turned toward what you're going to have to face. Look at verse 4. He says, But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So Jesus is letting them know that he knows what's to come so that when these difficulties come, they won't be taken off guard. He wants them to remember when these tough times come that he told them that they were going to come. And as a result, he wants them to not turn away from him, but stand firm in him. Now let's be honest, that's a tall order, isn't it? That is a tall order. How are they going to be able to do that? How are they going to be able to stand firm for Jesus when they're facing exile and certain death? They're probably thinking the same thing, right? No, I would. They're probably thinking Jesus is leaving us. And we're going to be left to ourselves and we're going to be faced with rejection and banishment and even death. And Jesus expects us to stand firm and not fall away. How do you suggest we do that, Jesus? Sure, that's what they were thinking. Well, after giving them this tough news, Jesus gives them a wonderful word of comfort. Look at verse 7. He says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus tells them here, though I'm leaving by way of crucifixion, and though it's going to be tough for you, and though you're going to be left to face fierce opposition, it is good. It is to your advantage. It is a good thing that I'm leaving you and going away so that I can accomplish salvation for you and so that I can send you the helper, the counselor, the advocate, the Holy Spirit to come to your aid. Now remember when we talked about a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this word helper in here. Remember I said that it's the Greek word paraclete, and that's a very important word because that word refers to someone who comes in and fights on our behalf. That's what that word means. And the idea here is that the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he comes to us in the midst of battle and he comes with strength and with force. He comes and he strengthens us and he empowers us and he fights with us in the battle. He doesn't come after the battle is fought, but he comes in the midst of battle and he comes to empower us and to help us stand strong and to bring victory. That's what Jesus means when he says the Holy Spirit is our paraclete. He is our counselor, our helper, our comforter, our advocate. So Jesus tells his disciples, he says, though I'm leaving you and you're going to face fierce opposition, it's good that I go because when I go, the Spirit is going to come to your aid and he is going to empower you and he is going to fight for you. 
Now let me ask you this. Why won't the helper, uh, why won't the helper of the Holy Spirit come if Jesus stays? You ever thought about that when reading this verse? It says, if I don't go, the Holy Spirit won't come. Why not? Well, the answer is really simple. You see, we'll see in a moment that one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit is to direct people to Christ and to present to them His completed works. It's one of the primary things the Holy Spirit does. So think about this. If Christ does not leave His disciples and accomplish salvation for them and return to the Father, then the Holy Spirit will not come to the disciples to do this work because the works of Christ will not be completed. Remember, that's what the Holy Spirit does. He directs people to Christ and he presents to them his completed works. So get this. The primary work that the Holy Spirit does is contingent upon the completed works of Christ. You with me? So you see here why Jesus leaving them is a good thing. He has to leave them and go and accomplish salvation for them so that the Holy Spirit can come and apply this finished work to them so that they can have life in Christ's name and so they can be empowered to stand against the fiercest of opposition. That's exactly what they do. That's exactly what happens. In the very next book, in the book of Acts, we learn that 11 of the 12 disciples prevail against all odds and they advance God's kingdom. And, and we often look at what they did and we say, wow, you know, look at all the stuff they did. I could never do that. I could never accomplish what they did. Well, if this is your mentality, let me ask you this. Why not? Why not? Believers, don't you have the same spirit indwelling you today? Isn't that what Scripture teaches? Maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, man, God could never use me in that way, you know? I'm not a very gifted speaker. I don't have much of an education. I'm not what you would call a leader. And I'm also pretty cowardly. If I'm being honest, maybe you're thinking to yourself, you know, I often fold at the first sign of opposition. I mean, how could God ever use me? Well, listen, I want you to hear this. And I know this to be true in my own life. I especially know this to be true in the scriptures. But if you're thinking along these lines, you are the exact type of person that God delights in using. Truth is, without the empowering work of the Holy Spirit, without Him coming to our aid and fighting for us and empowering us, none of us would be worth anything to God. None of us would have anything to offer. It's His work in and through us that truly makes the difference. Believers, my prayer for you today is that as you leave here today, when you're thinking about your role in God's kingdom work, and hear me when I say we all have a role to play, when you're thinking about that, I pray that what you bring to the table would not even enter into your mind. You would leave here thinking about the great work that God can and will do in and through you if you are surrendered to him.
So that's the first reason this promise, the promise of the Spirit would have been of great comfort to them because the Spirit is coming to fight for them. Number two, the second reason why I believe the promise of the Holy Spirit is the the greatest source of comfort for Jesus' disciples is because of the fact that the Holy Spirit is coming to convict the world. He comes to convict the world. Now let me explain what I mean here. Let me explain why this would be a comfort to his disciples. Look at verse 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. You know, when we think of the Holy Spirit and his work and conviction, we as believers, we we normally think of him convicting us, right? As Christians, That's, that's what we think. We think of Him working in our lives and showing us where we are out of line with God's Word. And though the Spirit does this, here in this context, Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit coming to convict the world. And when He says world here, He's talking about the unbelieving world. So Jesus is saying to His disciples here, though many who are close to you are going to turn against you, and though I'm leaving you behind in this dark and dead world, the Spirit is going to come and indwell you, and He is going to shine in and through you, and He is going to shine on others. And He is going to expose their sinfulness and their wickedness. And He is going to draw many to me. Though we learn from the scriptures that many reject Christ, many also respond to his work as well, don't they? Though many respond with rejection and unbelief, there are many others who respond with repentance and faith. So Jesus is encouraging his disciples here before he departs by telling them what the Spirit is going to come and do. He says when the Spirit comes, he is going to expose man's sinfulness. He is going to break down that resistance that all men have. He's going to smash the wall of sin in their life and is going to penetrate into the darkest of human hearts and is going to bring them to the side of Jesus. Wow. It's awesome, isn't it? So he says, stay faithful, stand firm, and see this great work the Spirit is going to do. Wow, what a great word of comfort that is. And believers, this work is still taking place today. Did you know that? I know there are some of you here this morning who have people who are heavy on your hearts. Maybe you've prayed for them for years. And you've shared Christ with them over and over again and feel as if they're too far gone, past the point of return, and you feel like giving up. Hear me when I say this. As long as there is still breath in their lungs and life in their bones, don't give up hope. Don't stop. Don't quit. Trust that there is still hope for them. Because the same Spirit who was at work then is at work today, and He is able to penetrate and change the darkest of human hearts. Jesus shared this with his disciples to comfort them while they were nearing their darkest hour. And I pray that this would bring comfort to you today in your darkest hour. Well, there's a third reason why I believe the promise of the Holy Spirit is a great comfort for Jesus' disciples, and it's for this reason. 
It's because of the fact that the Holy Spirit is coming to guide them into all truth. The Holy Spirit guides us into all truth. Look at verse 12. Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Notice verse 13 again. Jesus says that when the Spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth. Now, why would this be comforting to the disciples? I'll tell you. During Jesus' earthly ministries, his disciples were confused a lot, weren't they? It seemed like Jesus was always doing or saying something that was just leaving them scratching their heads, right? And toward the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, they are probably as confused as they've ever been. Jesus has told them that he's leaving them and that they're going to suffer in his name and they're confused and troubled by this news more than ever before. And, And here's the thing. Jesus hasn't even scratched the surface of sharing all the things they need to know. They're hung up on the fact that he's leaving and that they're going to suffer and they're perplexed and they're confused and troubled by this and they can't take much else at this time. So at this time, they're they're just too overwhelmed and confused to process anything else, which is why Jesus says to them, there are many things I still have to say to you, but I'm not going to tell you at this time because they'd be too much for you. You cannot bear them right now because you're so burdened by what's to come. So we see here, they're, they're not even mature enough to handle anything else. They're still babies in their understanding of the gospel. And I'm sure this was tough for them. I mean, Jesus is getting ready to leave them and they don't feel ready. I hate that feeling, don't you? I had this difficult class when I was in college. And I remember leaving there most days more confused than when I went in. And I remember even after the reviews, the night before the exam, feeling ill-equipped. It was a terrible feeling. That's the way the disciples were feeling. They were not prepared for what was to come. They felt as if Jesus was leaving them. He was exiting the scene, leaving them ill-equipped and unprepared. But Jesus comforts them in verse 13 by telling them that when the Spirit comes, get this, He is going to guide them in all truth. He says, though you're confused and troubled by the news you have, he says, though you're having a difficult time processing the fact that I'm leaving you and that you're going to suffer because of me, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit is coming. The Spirit of truth is coming. And when he comes, he is going to to bring clarity to you. He's going to explain all these things to you. He's going to bring to your mind the truths that you need for salvation and for godly living. He is going to to bring to your mind all the ins and outs of my gospel. That's not all he does, is it, believers? We also learn elsewhere in the scriptures that it's the Holy Spirit who guides and directs a few of these men here along with a few others to write these things down. In the scriptures, right? He moves upon and directs some to record these truths. And, and, and he does this so that he can guide future generations as well, like us. He guides us in truth through his written word. And the work of 
inspiration was not the work that the Holy Spirit did just in the New Testament. Many often think he just came on the scene when Jesus ascends and the church begins. But that's not the case. The Spirit has been at work since the beginning, just like the Father and the Son. Scripture tells us that he inspired all the writings of the Bible. Now, you have these in your spiritual growth guide, but I'll go through these quickly. Paul tells us, 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is inspired by God. And Peter tells us, in 2 Peter 1.20, listen to this, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by who? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. So Jesus comforts his disciples with this truth. He says, it's good that I go away so that the Spirit can come and guide you and future generations in all truth. And notice also that Jesus tells his disciples that the Spirit is not going to come and do his own thing, does he? He's not going to take this work and go in a completely different direction. He says, the Spirit is going to come and he is going to continue my work. Look at the end of verse 13. Jesus says, For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Jesus says to his disciples, Though it seems as if I'm leaving you all too soon and ill-equipped, my spirit is coming to pick up right where I'm leaving off. He says, he'll be working in connection with me just like I was working in connection with the Father. And he'll bring clarity to your confusion. He will declare to you and make clear to you the things that are to come. Look at verse 14 through 15. Jesus says, he will glorify me for he will take what is mine, declare it to you. All the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Here again, we see one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit. One of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit is that he magnifies the Lord Jesus. He comes to direct people to him. And the Spirit comes to present to us his completed works. Jesus said he's going to take what is mine and he's going to take who I am. He's going to take my person, my works, and my teachings and he is going to make those things clear to you. That's primarily what the Spirit does, folks. Believers, there's a key truth that we need to remember today when it comes to the Holy Spirit because there's a lot of confusion about who the Holy Spirit is and what He does. Well, we learn here pretty clearly in this passage, don't we? The primary role of the Holy Spirit. It's not so much to bring something new as it is His role to magnify and glorify the person and work of Jesus. His role is to point to His teachings... His person, His work. Remember what Jim said when he was with us toward the end of June? He said, I'll summarize for you what the work of the Spirit is, and he just pointed. That's what he does. He points to Jesus. He magnifies Jesus. He glorifies Jesus. I've had people ask, you know, criticize me before, you know, saying from outside the church, saying we're not being all about the Holy Spirit. 
And my response is, if we're being all about Jesus, we're being all about the work of the Spirit. Because that's what the Spirit does. So that's what we're to do. He purposefully plays a backseat role to magnify and glorify the Lord Jesus. That's what the Spirit does, according to the Scriptures. But though that's the case, get this. The work that he does is still so very, very important. Because without it, without the, the inward work of the Spirit, without his guidance, without him coming to us and making these truths known to us, get this, we would be without salvation. Like I said earlier, it is the Holy Spirit who is able to open blind eyes, soften callous hearts, and transform broken lives so that one sees the beauty of Christ and responds to him in faith. If you're here this morning and you are trusting in Christ for your salvation, listen, you have the Spirit of God to thank for that. He's the one who's opened your blind eyes. He's the one who has softened your calloused heart, and he is the one who has transformed your broken life. But if you're here this morning and you are not trusting in Christ, let me tell you this, you need the work of the Spirit in your life today. You need him to enter into your life and awaken you to faith in Christ. Because Scripture is clear that without him, you'll remain blind calloused and broken if you're here and you're not trusting in Christ for salvation this morning I pray the Holy Spirit would do a great work in you right here and right now and that you would respond to his work by turning from your sins and making Christ Lord of your life let's pray